0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Seeking Sustainability and Happy New Year to all of you. Um, I cannot fathom the fact that 2020 is over. Um, I'm not even going (laughs) to, obviously, rehash everything that all of you have been thinking and feeling and have heard um, about 2020. Obviously, we all know it was exhausting and unique and weird and eye-opening, but... Alas, we are in a new year, which means an opportunity for fresh starts, to explore new ideas, to explore new hobbies, um, to work on ourselves and the communities around us, and also to continue the fights that we are um, that we are working through. So let's not forget the things that happened in twenty. 20- not that we any of us could, but. But let's not forget Black Lives Matter. Let's not forget the the climate crisis. Let's not forget Breonna Taylor. Let's not forget all of these kind of conversations that we had in 2020. Because, you know, they're not just specific to to that year. I think like a lot of these issues are going to continue. The work's not done. And with that said, um, I. In this interview i talked to kevin patel who founded one up action and we talk about these kinds of issues we talk about the policy that needs to be put in place um, moving forward the the impact and the significance of young people nowadays and young people throughout the last couple of years um and yeah the kind of change that we want to see in the world and at one point something that i found really profound that he said was just he was like i'm just exhausted i'm tired of talking about this and i Plead to people to take these issues seriously, to take the climate crisis seriously, um, and I I think a lot of us probably feel that. A lot of us probably feel tired and drained, um we don't want to have the same conversations over and over again. But you know, unfortunately, we need to, and we need to keep working on these things because there's so much work that still needs to be done. Um, but hopefully, hearing Kevin talk about all the work that he does, even as a full time student, and he's so young, so he's still in college. Um, Hopefully all the work that he's doing you find inspirational and um yeah so stay hopeful, stay inspired, stay motivated, stay optimistic because we need all of that moving forward. And with that said, uh let's welcome Kevin Patel to the Seeking Sustainability podcast.
1: I guess for me, being an environmentalist, you know, embodies not only fighting for the people that you love right the community that you mm, grew up in but totally. for the planet um, and I'm all about fighting for the people and the planet so in environmentalism for me you know for these past nine years has always been about my community but not only about my community about the the place that we're living on right the earth itself the planet and focusing on the biodiversity that brings us you know that makes us you know thrive and survive
0: yeah and I think like part of the big problem too is people don't think of other people I mean honestly like just to put it like super bluntly or simply people don't think about others other communities outside of their own or sometimes even their own community in general
1: definitely I I, you know a lot of people are very about themselves and i think it's also about the corporations and organizations that also just you know think about even in the individuals who are rich only think about themselves and not the people who they're impacting the most and who they're benefiting yeah, from totally. um and so it's just it's very much about this greed mindset of like you know i think we you're you're extracting you know, these resources and these, you know, you're, you're taking the time from these people who are giving their lives to make, you know, minimum wage and try to sort like, try to have their family survive, right, and so it's, I think it's also, like, it's about greed, right, Mm, it's about how people, it's about how greed focuses on, or how greed really hones in on, how everything works in this society and how people and individuals, even politicians do this, you know, they use greed in the sense of like, we only care about the economy instead of the planet. And they don't look at the long-term effects that the economy is actually having on the the planet, right? And it's all about money instead of, instead of, you know, the people who are being affected by these industries and these corporations and these individuals who are doing what they want to make a buck or two out of this, right? for a short term. Um, and they're not really looking at the impact that they're making on the planet either. So it's the people on the planet that we have to worry about.
0: Yeah, totally. And the people I think who are pushing back against climate change the most are the people who are just like solely focused on profit and are so short-sighted and have this mm-hmm. like really linear, narrow-minded perception of of policy and of um of just Anything. Yeah. But um, I would wanted to also just for you to talk about your background, like who you are and like where you go to school and what you're studying and how you um, what prompted you to start the organization that you started.
1: Yeah, definitely. So as everyone knows, my name is Kevin Jipital. I am now 20 years old. Um, it's so weird to say that because I was always saying 19, 19, 19. But now it's just it I is. just turned 20. It makes you feel old. Um, <laughs> It does feel, yeah, I've been doing this work for nine years, so definitely it's been quite a long time coming. I started when I was at the age of 11, Um, so it's definitely been a long, long, long time um, since, you know, doing activism and really fighting for my community. Um, Yeah, I'm 20 years old. I live in South Central Los Angeles and, uh, you know, in the greater Los Angeles area, Um, and you know I think one of the things that prompted me to really get involved with climate change and climate activism and activism in general was how I was seeing the inequalities and injustices happening to my community of South Central Los Angeles. I specifically saw the food inequalities that were happening here in my community where you know we don't have access to uh, you know organic non-GMO vegan foods and we would have to you know literally travel 40 to 30 to even one hour a way to get these type of foods, Um, and they're not even built in around our community. Um, And, you know, it's called a a food prison, literally, AKA, um, it was termed by, uh, you know, the gangster gardener, Ron Finley.
0: I love Um, him, he's so cool.
1: (laughs) He's very amazing. Um, You know, one of my first inspirational people that I kind of really saw from the same community that I came from, right? Um, working on issues of inequalities and injustices that are happening uh, here. But it's also a food desert. And so you can see literally where, you know, kids you know my age at that time didn't know where food came from. They were, you know, what I would ask them and they would be, you know, clue. They, they didn't know a clue where food came from. They were literally, they would say the fast food chains um, that would be, you know, right up a block or two away from our houses or the grocery stores, which didn't have as healthy options, um, you know? And so that was quite concerning. They didn't know that they can grow their own foods. Um, So I really got started on that block of like teaching them until, and that was like around my first semester of sixth grade. So I started at a, you know, during during that time, first semester of sixth grade, but then second semester of sixth grade, I was affected by heart palpitations and irregular, irregular heartbeat, and, you know, that changed my life in a matter of minutes, where I was in a hospital for about three years, uh, you know, and none of the doctors knew where my problem was stemming from. They literally thought it was, you know, they literally thought nothing of it. They were just, like, astonished how a healthy boy like me, you know, someone that's so young who was playing badminton and tennis and did some running and stuff like that. Going from that that boy to, you know, being someone who's in and out of the hospital with heart palpitations and is unable to breathe and stuff like that. I kind of did my own research and I found out that, you know, air and smog pollution was ravaging Los Angeles, not just South Central Los Angeles, right? But Los Angeles in general, it was such a huge problem. And that also causes underlying health issues such as asthma, heart palpitations, irregular heartbeat, um, and all these other underlying health issues. And I just knew that that was, that is what caused it because I was living not only near a freeway, I was living near factories, I was, you know, so close to so many cars and stuff like that. Los Angeles itself was so close so I was literally being affected by the air and smog pollution. And ever since then, I said, enough is enough. You know, it's not just my, it's not just me that's being affected by these issues. It's my community that, you know, the place I love is being affected by these issues. And ever since then, I've been fighting. Um, And just recently, last year, I started an organization called One Up Action. And the reason why I started that organization was because I saw Just how, um, you know, just how important the movement, you know, is. There was no youth climate movement nine years ago. Um, And when I first got started this movement, there, you know, there was always an environmental movement, but the environmental movement has always been white dominated and, you know, white and white passing people have always had a space. And they've always, you know, they've held the power for so long. And so when I first got involved, there were no resources for me. And whenever I joined these organizations like Greenpeace and all these other organizations, they were really white led. And, uh, you know, I didn't feel safe in that, in in those spaces uh, to really give my opinion or even to, you know, discuss the solutions that really need to be brought into our communities. It was always about you know, national parks, what are we doing to save national parks? What are we doing to conservation? What is that yeah. looking like? Anything that is around this white dominated, you know, space of like, oh, we only care about what is going to affect us, right? We're not caring about the communities that are literally being affected by the, you know, all these industries that are destructive. But not only that, but, you know, the ones that are little these marginalized communities, these BIPOC communities, Black, Indigenous, people of color that are being affected by the climate crisis at the forefront, at the front lines of this crisis. So they didn't really care. And so, you know, um, you know, that, that really, I didn't have any resources to really get started. And I really wanted to change that. So for the past nine years, I've not only been trying to amplify more BIPOC voices within its movement, I've also been Making sure that we're not only amplified, but there is representation, but there, we're also at the seat at the table, right? We're at the key key decision-making tables that are literally determining what happens with our communities. Um, who better to bring solutions than those who are being affected most by this crisis? And um, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer that young people, especially BIPOC marginalized and low-income peoples, are the best suited to bring forth these climate solutions they're the ones that understand the you know dire need for solutions and the dire need for action within these communities within their own communities within my community fairly um and so nine um so like i said last year i started one up action uh which is an organization that provides resources to you know the change makers for today, the advocates of today and the leadership today. So activists literally needing the resources and we focus on BIPOC, marginalized and low income peoples.
0: Okay, you are doing so much. <laughs> and yeah, I mean good for you. I mean you're still in college and you're doing all of this and you started that when you or you started activism and and learning and researching and um, when you were 11, which is crazy. I was in like Paso when I was in 11. When I was 11, um, but why? This was a question that I was going to ask more towards the end, but you mentioned the importance of young people, particularly BIPOC and marginalized individuals. Why do you think that young people and, like we both have said, um, BIPOC individuals are so imperative to combating this climate crisis? Because they really are. And I feel like you're right, like young people and BIPOC people have shown up the most mm-hmm. and done like so much of the work
1: you know i think in general young people have been such a moving factor i think we understand oh, totally. the you know the dire need for action right we understand what's happening we're not stupid we're you know we're awoken we're awoken to all these crises it's not just the climate crisis we're awoken to the uh, gender crisis we're awoken to the injustices that are happening to our black community members we're ha- awoken to the injustices um, that are happening around the world, you know, the inequalities that are literally uh, affecting people all around the world. It's not just, you know, here in the United States that we have a lot of problems. It's around the world that people are seeing these problems and young people are really being awoken to them, saying like, we don't want this future. We want a different one. We want to have a world where we don't have to live with injustices or inequalities. We want to live... in a world where we have justice for every you know every person where we don't only just have equality or equity we have justice and that means you know equal opportunity and the tools to really live a a happy and you know fair lives i think one of the things that i always say um why bipoc black indigenous people of color and marginalized young people are so imperative to this movement not just the climate crisis movement but to all movements because we're the ones that are literally at the front lines of this crisis we're at the forefront and at the front lines of this crisis and we understand because we're the ones that are facing these obstacles and adversities we're the ones that are seeing everything that's happening to our communities so who better right who better to you know who has gone through this and seen it to really say this is what we can do to fix these issues right because we've gone through it we know what's going to go what's happening and we know how to fix it it's, there's no young person that I know of, um, at least, you know, I've spoken to so many young people who are, you know, black, indigenous, people of color, who have all these innovative solutions and these actions that they can take and say, like, we can fix this with this, we can fix this with that. And I'm like, God, w- you know, where are these at, you know, where, where are these solutions at the key decision-making tables So I think one of the things that I tend to see and tend to really want is young people at those tables, young people at, not only being amplified and saying, hey, yeah, we have uh, one brown, you know, Asian kid that's speaking about climate crisis. Yeah, because I'm Indian, Asian American, but I, I think one of the things that we have to tend to forget is that it's not only about representation or amplification about our voices, it's making sure that our voices are used in a strategic way and we're really implementing the w- the things that we're saying in these plans, these bold climate solutions like the Green New Deal or Project uh, you know, Drawdown or, Um, all these big big solutions are coming out Um, and definitely it's something that you know we we shouldn't just stop there there are many other things that we must do because not one thing is going to solve the whole entire climate crisis not you know the green deal deal is not going to solve the climate crisis by itself it's we're going to need to add a lot more to that we're going to have to expand and a lot of people want to believe that that it's going to solve the climate crisis but it's not Um, and that's the real truth right it's like you look at it you know we're at a point where scientists are saying, you know, even the Green New Deal won't be enough. You know, we're at a point where it might, yeah, it might reverse the facts, but there are other issues like we're in the midst of the sixth mass extinction. How are we going to really solve that, right? And how are we going to prevent animals and plants going, you know, go, from going extinct? And so bringing it back to the central theme of young people and why they're so important to the, this movement is that, We're bringing the solutions. I think one of the, you know, one of the the notions that politicians always say, or one of the things that politicians always say is that young people are the leaders of tomorrow, that we are going to have to study and become the next politicians in the future. But I think that's completely false that is a wrong narrative to paint on the young people of today because young people of today are the leaders of today. We are the young change makers. We are the advocates of today. We're literally the activists. And actually, we are the world leaders, right? right. I was the, just about
0: to say, we already are. We, are like,
1: the, we already are. And so we're already bringing this change. And so I think it's so wrong for politicians and these people who are um, older than us to say that, you know, to stay in school and to learn about these issues and talk about, you know, running for office in the next 10 years. We don't have that time left. We literally mm. are. Young people are so smart that they're already realizing these inequalities and injustices exist even after the COVID-19 pandemic, right? The rest right. of the world must have been awoken with the COVID-19 pandemic, but the young people were already awoken, oh, well beyond that, right? Yeah. Um, it's been years that they've been awoken. And um, I think with every movement, young people have, literally let it the civil rights movement the me too movement young people are always constantly leading these movements and so um young people are so you know they understand they they not only see but they can they can bring these solutions we just have to uh, not only give them a chance but we have to make sure that they're um you know they're at these tables um and when i mean tables i mean at these key decision making tables and they're not just amplified or given some news media they're literally giving a voice and the power to make the decisions on behalf of their communities
0: yeah and I think our generation's different too like our young people in general because we like really understand the Mm -hmm. interconnectedness interconnectedness and intersection between all of these different all of these different conversations that aren't these like siloed secular things that they we understand that they should be talked about in a way that, yeah, like we, we really understand the fact that all of these things are connected. And that's where like the whole notion of intersexual environmentalism came from. And like, you know, people of our generation literally coined this term that embodies those ways of thought. So if, would you be able to talk about, because I know on your one-up action website, it says that you guys are an intersexual environmentalist organization. Can you talk about what that means? for maybe someone who's seen it but doesn't quite understand what that encompasses.
1: Yeah, definitely. So let me start off with the terms, the definitions of intersectionality. Intersectionality was termed by Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, and, and that really talks about race, gender, class, and you know, social economic status and all of these other things that are intertwined really, you know, you can see the connections between between these um these, you know, issues and these, literally, these classifications and categories. Um, intersectional environmentalism is quite a new term. and It was coined by Leah Thomas, who, you know, during the Black Lives Matter movement uh, and, and the killing of George Floyd saw that not only are we, you know, environmentalists, you know, fighting for Black lives, we must fight for Black lives because mm. intersectional environmentalism is all about how, these, you know, problems. And when we're talking about these problems, we're talking about racial inequality, talking about social justice, social injustice, and we're talking about all of these, you know, problems, the how they're all interconnected, right? And how um, it's not just about the people, but it's also about the planet. So when we're talking about the people and the planet, we're talking about how the systems, the systems of oppression that are perpetrating the climate crisis, that are perpetrating racism, that are perpetrating um, discrimination, and all these other things, and these inequalities and injustices, are, you know, all intertwined. Climate, The climate crisis is perpetrated by the systems of oppression, and the systems of oppression are perpetrating all these other Um, issues. And and when I mean issues, I mean these injustices and inequalities. And once we take a look at that, we can really start solving these issues, such as climate justice, such as um, racial, you know, uh, racial injustices, you know, and all these other uh, injustices and inequalities that are happening all around the world. So just really looking at how intersectional environmentalism or intersectionality in general is talking about how these issues are all interconnected. And then once we realize that, we can really start solving the issues. Um, because it's not just about, you know, climate change and how we're going to solve climate change, right? It's about, if we're really wanting to solve climate change, we have to do, look at the communities that are literally being affected by the mm-hmm. climate crisis, the Black, Indigenous, people of color who are being affected, right? And- that's the whole notion of intersectionality is making sure that the communities that are being affected the most by the climate crisis are also being affected by all of these other issues inequalities and injustices until we fix not only the climate crisis and these injustices and inequalities then we're never going to have climate justice we're never going to have social justice we're not going to have racial justice we're never going to have justice for these people because we're only tending to focus on one issue and that one issue is already being perpetrated by a bigger thing that's perpetrating all these other inequalities and injustices. So it's making sure that we're seeing how everything is connected and how we can really, you know, Leah put it very good. It's like the term uh, or, you know, the, the phrase I can breathe. It's not just about how Black lives are being literally killed. It's about how you know, Black lives can't breathe in these communities because of the factories and the oil, you know, oil drilling and all of that that's happening. in you know, Black communities, uh, yeah. not only Black communities, Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities. So it's just, you know, Leah said that and I kind of, you know, I also was like, that is something that I was a to into is because I, you know, literally associated that only with how police brutality, but it's like, it's not only about that. It's also about making sure that these issues are looked in the broad scope and you're seeing how these are all interconnected. And once we truly understand that, we can really solve um, not only the climate crisis, but we can solve all these injustices and inequalities. So it's about seeing how the uh, the systems of oppression are causing not only the climate crisis, but all of these other issues. And once we notice that, we can really start fighting against the main enemy, which is the systems of oppression. And I think, during this COVID 19 pandemic, we were awoken not only by how the fossil fuel industry was, you know, we don't, we no longer shouldn't be relying on the fossil fuel industry anymore because it literally right. tanked during the COVID 19 pandemic, but, um, you know, how we saw how we were really being affecting the planet. And so, and we're being awoken. And this shouldn't even be a wake up call. I'm sorry to say it should have never been a wake up call. Everyone should have been already awoken to the effects that they're making on the planet. Um, but again, people love calling it just a wake-up call, Mm. and so I'm using in that term, and, you know, people were woken to this, and so it's now about seeing how we're, how governments and um, people react to it, and saying, like, shit, we're actually making a a huge impact on the environment and the people, so what are we going to really do about it, right, what policies, what motions, what laws are we put in place that are going to not only benefit the people, but the planet, right, and so I think that was what you know, intersectional environmentalism, at least for me, was, you know, um, you know, brought apart. And in in intersectionality is also making sure you're bringing in diverse voices. It's not just one voice that is being, you know, utilized and amplified and is at the key decision-making table. And I think, you know, BIPOC voices have been so left out of this conversation and they're, you know, criticized the movement for being intergenerational last year but not intersectional and we truly mean intersectional we're bringing in all these diverse voices who are at, who are being affected by these injustices and inequalities so um one of action is intergenerational and intersectional in the fact that we not only bring in diverse voices but we're making sure that every single voice is heard and um we're acting upon you know making sure that young people people who look like me you know people uh, who are literally uh, being affected by the climate crisis right now are, are given the resources to combat it and really take start, start taking action instead of you know, continuing this conversation about solutions.
0: Wow. I Well, I had a thought when you were saying that, like, the notion of people should have already been awake. I think people were awake, and they have been, but they just choose to turn their head the other way. Like, mm-hmm. people really just choose to, like, not acknowledge the things that are right in front of them because i mean regarding the climate crisis like people have been affected by it for so long i mean there's literally been been occurrences and natural disasters and and tragedies that have been right in front of us on the news and we just people just choose to turn their heads the other way um but yeah, everything you said was so profound. Also, I don't know if you've ever, like, listened to yourself talk, but when you talk about this, you're, like, so passionate and you're so interesting to listen to. <laughs> and if you ever publish a book, I'll buy it.
1: I actually, before we move on, I actually want to give the definition of Leah Thomas's intersectional environmentalism. Yeah. And that's okay with you. Yeah, absolutely. So, oh, my gosh. And, and, you know, with Leah Thomas, Leah Thomas basically defines what is intersectional environmentalism. She defines it as this is an inclusive Inclusive version of environmentalism that advocates for both the production, uh, sorry, protect protection of the people and the planet. It identifies the the ways in which injustices happening to marginalized communities and the earth are interconnected. It brings injustices done to the most vulnerable communities and the earth to the forefront, and does not minimize or silence social inequality. Intersectional environmentalism advocates for justice for people plus the planet. And so that exactly encompasses what I just said is that, you know, we're not only seeing these injustices, we have to interconnect them with how it's happening to the the people and the planet and how these systems are really causing, you know, these injustices and inequalities and how we're going to. Um, how intersection environmentalism fights and advocates not only for justice for the people, but for the planet as well.
0: Yeah. And it even makes me think, it's kind of random, but it popped into my head. Last okay. night I was listening to um, the, the this podcast called Ologies. And um, there was, it was an episode called Indigenous Fashionology. And they were talking about how even like the roots of so many of like our environmental policies are rooted in oppressing indigenous people and oppressing people of color like for example the migratory bird act it was it was claimed to prevent um or protect species of birds but in reality like if you actually dug deeper and looked beneath the surface it was really to as kind of like a way to punish indigenous people for having bird feathers and punishing them for wearing their traditional regalia. so yeah, I think like so much of our environmental policy too needs to be rethought and because it's so rooted in white supremacy and like was created with such a colonialist mindset.
1: It definitely was. I think, yeah, it's it's just ridiculous how these policies are literally affecting, um, you know, these communities, especially indigenous communities. But when we look at BIPOC We've, we tend to forget the I in BIPOC and that is indigenous. And mm. I think a lot of indigenous people have noticed that is that when we're having these conversations, when you say you're a BIPOC organization, you have to make sure that you have indigenous people, not just, you know, their voices amplified, but at the seat at the table that are making, you know, uh, that are part of the organization to be called a BIPOC organization. It, you know, you can be a black, indigenous people of color organization, um, with everyone included, right, that are coming from all these different ethnicities, but a lot of organizations and corporations want to use that term loosely but never have Mm -hmm. representation from Indigenous people. So that is a very, you know, one of the things that I've seen come up a lot and it's it's very scary because it's like you can't just use this term and say that you're going to get away with it. You're not because, you know, people are noticing. You have to make sure that Indigenous people are included in these conversations. They're the stewards of the land. They were here before us. They know what you know what the hell is going on, right? They know how to take care of the uh, the you know the land better than than you know people do. Um, I just, I it's a hard conversation because I've spoken to so many of my friends who are Indigenous, and uh, a lot of them really say the same thing. Is like you know a lot of people tend to forget the I and BIPOC
0: ugh and it, it's crazy too because like they've always had the answers like i mean when like all the Cal- california wildfires happening um i heard that the california i could i don't know if this is true or not but that the california state government was like finally considering consulting indigenous people because they knew and have always known how to tame the wildfires and tend to the forests and manage land properly Um, and kind of get this under control and it's just crazy because like I'm reading Braiding Sweetgrass and it's like they've always had the answers and they're right there and we've for centuries just stomped all over them and stolen their land and when in fact it it's always belonged to them and for thousands hundreds of years they've had the answers that we are trying to look for Um, and also I think like I wanted to ask, I wanted to I now remember. Um, as a student and an environmentalist mm-hmm. and a change maker and a person of color who's been affected by this crisis and seeing your communities and your friends affected by this, what kind of policy do you want to see put into place going forward? Like what kind of change do you want to see on a government level on a you know international level going forward?
1: I think one of the things that I always tend to focus on is that we're making sure that we're including the voices that are being most impacted by this crisis, right, which is Black, Indigenous, People of Color. So I really want to see policies that are implementing those, um, you know, implementing edicts that are going to not only include our voices, but give us the power to really put forth solutions and actions on behalf of our communities, right? But not only that, I also hope for, you know, the first step is to pass the Green New Deal and yeah. maybe even implement solutions like, like Drawdown or something like that, but like, you know, implementing solutions even more. I think one of the things that I tend to focus on is like, instead of talking about the climate crisis and it being such a divisive tool for the right wing and the left wing and just talking about how we must act, how we must not act because it's a hoax, blah, blah blah blah, blah, blah. We have to tend to realize that this is a fact. A fact is that you know, millions of people around the world are being affected by this, not only being affected, but dying because of this crisis. You know, here in the United States, we have, I think one of the deadliest wildfire seasons, you know, in California in history where we literally had fires across our state. Not only that, but we had a heat wave, we had air pollution, small pollution in the city of Los Angeles. We saw the sky turn this orange color that, you know, the sky is not supposed to turn orange, first of all, right? And then we're seeing yeah. I think the 29th the 30th uh, a hurricane um, you know going through the East Coast so like it's it's something people need to be awoken it's not something it's not an opinion it should never be an opinion it should be a fact that this crisis exists and we must start acting upon it it's, I think one of the things is like I'm I'm just kind of tired and sick of politicians using this as saying it's a hoax it's
0: not a hoax or like it's, it's a, a myth or like a theory it's
1: it- yeah it's not that it's never that it's not, it, their lived experience of people being affected by this crisis there there there's so many facts there's hundreds of facts of this and it is a fact that the climate crisis is real and is affecting people around the world millions of people are literally dying because of this plants and animals are dying because of this so we're never going to be able to see a lot of the animals that we love and care about in, you know the books and the movies that w- you know we, pr- we we portray them in right and so I think are we going to continue portraying them while they die off? And, you know, the only uh, plants and animal species that we're able to see are in like movies and TVs and, you know, books, or do we want to have our future generations, our next seven generations, our kids, um, our grandkids to see these uh, animals and plants up close and alive, right. And thriving. And so that's the real question is that what I think, as a student who's been working on this for nine years someone who has been affected by the climate crisis firsthand i think one of the things i want to see is instead of talking about this and and having it being so divisive, we have to just be awoken to the fact that this is real this is affecting people all around the world people are dying and we we have no time to continue talking about solutions, continue talking about how we're going to convince governments to start acting on the climate crisis. Your short-term profit is not going to, is, it's not going to matter in, a, you know, in 30, 40 years when people are going to be dead in your city, you know, it's not going to matter. Um, it's not going to matter when tens and billions of people are literally going to die, right? And it's not going to matter when plants and animals uh, are going to be extinct you know, and so it's literally not going to matter. Because during that time, you know, the world is going to be a different place. And this might sound like the world is ending, but it's not. It's just talking about how when climate experts talk about how we have 10 years to reverse the climate, the effects of the climate crisis, they're not talking about how we have 10 years left, like the world is going to end. No, it's talking about how we have to reverse the effects, the damages that we've done on the climate. It's talking about, you know, making sure that we're able to reverse the effects right the co2 and the greenhouse gas emissions and all these other you know uh, harmful effects that we've had on the planet to reverse them put forth solutions are not only going to benefit the planet but benefit the people who are living on it who are being affected the most right now because right when once we reach that 10 10 year mark and we we've done nothing it's not just going to be affecting the most marginalized communities, this is going to be affecting every single one. And then people are going to be awoken saying, shit, we should have acted 10 years ago. Yeah. And so it's just, I think, I'm, I'm sorry, I have to be blunt. It, it's something that I've always, I tend to be just kind of done with. It's like, I'm, I'm tired and sick of talking about this. And I'm, t- I'm, I'm really pleading to people to really understand that this is not something to, you know, even ha- have an opinion on. You just have to be awoken and, that this is real—that people are literally dying—I think this shouldn't be an opinion. This should be a fact, um, and that's just my opinion, my personal opinion.
0: Well, your personal opinion is right. Um, <laughs> I think your personal opinion is a fact, and I can I can speak to this too because like, there are people in my life who don't believe in climate change, and it's like, and it's just like, how can you be so short sighted? Like, how? How, like, how many fires is, is it going to take? How many orange skies are going to have to happen that look like apocalyptic? Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's where our generation has really been so powerful and is con- going to continue being as such, where we're like, fuck it. Like, we don't see you guys doing anything. So we're going to rally everyone up and we're going to create organizations. And even like for you, having been an 11 year old and like acknowledging the fact that there is, a global issue at hand. I mean, young mm-hmm. people are so powerful. I feel like that's really been like such a theme of like this episode, but yeah, I mean, it, it's just baffling how it's seen as like this myth or a question and and I wonder if that's like a very American thing. I don't know, what are your thoughts on that?
1: I think it's no, I think it's around the world. There are a lot of people who are, spect- you know, who don't believe and, um, who don't believe in a climate crisis. And I think one of the things is that I think we'll just, if we don't act, I think one of the things is going to, it's going to be karma, Literally, Yeah. it's going to be totally. until it affects people who are disbelievers, that's when they'll start believing. And that's when it will be too late. Uh, to really act on the climate crisis. I just think one of the things it's going to be karma and it's going to be it's going to hit them the worst until someone is really directly impacted by the climate crisis then they're awoken into it. If it doesn't affect them right now they don't care and I think that's one of the things that's so wrong but it's also about how people are bought off you know short term again it goes into greed and in how people are bought mm-hmm. off to this percep- perception that it's not affecting the planet nor is it affecting the people when you know there are so many facts out there and you can see it firsthand it, i think people need to walk in you know people need to walk in the shoes of the activists who literally live near oil wells literally live in a community that they're you know that is marginalized if they were walking you know if they were walking in my shoes they'll understand how i feel and how i perceive this world but a lot of people mm. are not in our shoes right people are not you know, in the shoes of those activists who are living near oil wells, who their families are contracting cancer and all these under underlying health issues. It was happening to your family. I'm sure as hell you wouldn't be saying climate change is a hoax. Um, right. People will be awoken to those facts and people would want to fight. And I think it's also like people get up in arms about like, you know, protecting their, their freedoms and stuff like that. But I think people need to protect their own base, you know, basic human rights. Um, and so I think people, all, everyone deserves to live a, um, a good life. And I think if we're not able to do that, then what are we really truly fighting for? Right.
0: Yeah. I was actually thinking about that this morning was like the lack of empathy. I mean, like, don't <laughs> worry, I won't, I won't drag you into like a whole political conversation, <laughs> but like, but like that really is like the the missing thing that is people see as like fluffy or like unnecessary in creating policy and in looking forward to the future is empathy because that that makes the difference and that is the thing the string that I think our generation understands connects you know communities of color and the environment and socioeconomic issues like it really just like having empathy like it is so powerful and important and I also wanted to ask um Mm -hmm. for I think all of this can feel you know overwhelming for people but it can yeah and and it is but it's obviously something that we all have to address and we can't turn our backs from. Um, so what advice would you give to young people or just people in general who want to get involved somehow or want to make a difference as an individual or contribute to the, the collective movement um, combating this crisis but are maybe unsure how to get started?
1: Definitely. There are so many things that people can do. Literally, I I wouldn't be – hundreds and thousands of things people can do as individuals and as, you know, standing in solidarity with one movement or, you know, the another. Um, whether that be taking systematic action, which is going through marches, protests, rallies. And that doesn't have to be specifically a climate, you know, climate crisis rally, you know, climate strike or anything like that. It can be a Black Lives Matter um, striking, and be a, a Me Too march or a women's march or anything that is literally protesting for the rights of people. Because if we're protesting for the rights of people, we're also protesting for the rights of the planet. Uh, people need to recognize how that's interconnected and how the, all these issues are interconnected. Yeah. Um, because, you know, um, they just are. And so I think taking that first step of realizing what community you come from you know what inequalities and injustices are happening within your community and there aren't any what can you do to really show your support is that if there is a climate strike if there is systematic actions that you can take take them go to that protest even in during this time people are going out to protest but stay safe you know wear a mask do something to stay safe and make sure that you're going out and you're prepared to you know take these actions to demand you know uh, justice for these communities If you're not able to do that i know i'm sure a lot of quite a lot of people are not able to do that take individual action there's so many other things that you can do change your daily habits plant a tree um, call a representative and say that you want climate action bold climate actions that are going to impact and help communities of color uh, and low-income communities marginalized communities do something that's going to you know make a small difference i think one of the things i always say is that a lot of people say that individual actions never equate to anything they do one I action hate when people really say that <laughs> I do too I Worst. really do I think that's that's the reason why one-up action is called one-up action because it's one up in your action it's like right when you're done with your systematic action what do we do we go back to regular schedules back home but let's not do that let's one-up our action and really start taking that one up you know taking that one up uh taking that one step to really one-up our action step up our action and um you know going above the systematic action and calling our local representatives, planting that tree, changing our local habits, you know, uh, from the foods that we eat to, you know, anything in general. Because a lot of people can do that. A lot of people can do that. But there's so many other things that people can do. And it's just about looking that up and taking that first initiative and taking that first step to say that you can still do something, even though that you're, you might be the busiest person in, in the world. I know because I do quite a lot. I'm running an international international you know international nonprofit. while I'm also a university a sophomore university student so I quite understand how you know I'm writing an, a 12-page essay while I'm also working and doing international calls at like three or four o'clock in the morning so
0: yeah well you're killing it you're seriously Thank like you. doing so good how do you cope with that stress do you just like do you eat a lot of Ben and Jerry's like do you just drink a lot of coffee <laughs>
1: You know, um, a lot of people say, how do I time manage and how am I able to really do all of this work? I think one of the things I tend to see is that um, I take the time to take a break. I don't, Mm. I'm not in full work mode every single time. I know I get over a thousand requests to do a lot of things, but I'm just like, that's something that i just don't have the time for and i give that i give those opportunities to other young people because again my whole mission in life was always to amplify other voices and making sure that we're getting other bipoc voices not only amplified and represented but they have um they they have the power you know and they're at those key decision making tables so um yeah i take breaks uh, i do a bit of tm which is you know meditation and stuff like that so um, I do a, a mixture of a lot of things I also drink coffee as you said
0: that's amazing yeah I just meditated for 10 minutes today it was really it was it was good I got through it um, and maybe I'll link some meditation in like the show notes or something that people can use mm-hmm. um, and how can people support one-up action because it's an amazing organization and you deserve to be supported in your organization so how can people support you and help you guys out
1: yeah, I think you know this is not just supporting me. It's supporting the young people who are involved in One Up Action. One Up Action is not just me. It's built of amazing, you know, BIPOC leaders, not, not only from the United States, from Canada, from India, from Africa, you know, different countries in Africa, uh, yeah. in Europe, you know, throughout Europe, uh, and even southern uh, South America. There's so many people involved, and so I think it's about supporting those young people. And um, people can visit our website at OneUpAction.org. Um, they can donate, you know, they can show their support by following our Instagram, which is 1UP Action. Um, and we're all One Up Action on 1UP Action throughout all of the social medias except uh, Twitter, which is 1UP Action Inc. Um, and so definitely supporting us by giving us a follow, donating money, uh, and supporting the young people who are a part of this organization that literally is focused on giving resources to other young people around the world, not just in the United States.
0: <laughs> yeah, you have such a killer team of people. They're so You have such a cool team. That and they're all so young, and I'm like, oh my gosh, you guys are all doing so good in life. Um, but then my closing question is that I always mm-hmm. ask everyone um, to leave off on like a lighter note. Is as an individual and environmentalist, what gives you hope for the future?
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm a very optimistic person. I think one of the things that get what gives me hope is that I tend to you know, with all the obstacles and adversities that I face, I tend to do what I want to do, what I love to do. And that's make change. And I think that's, you know, I think I see that in so many young people making change right now. And even though those changes are small strides and small victories, we're still making that change. And all of that combined makes big, you know, huge impact. So I think that what that's what gives me hope, is the young people all around the world who are making those small strides, that are getting those small victories, and even those big victories, those huge victories that are coming out of young people and uh, all around the world. So I think what gives me hope is the young people who are fighting for this crisis, you know, fighting uh, for, you know, justice and fighting for, um, a, you know, a planet without... You know, th- that is without the project
0: crisis. Thank you again, everyone, for tuning into this episode of Seeking Sustainability. If you enjoyed this episode or any others that you've listened to, then make sure to follow the podcast on whatever platform you're tuning in from. Also, to stay connected, you can follow the podcast Instagram at Seeking Sustainability underscore podcast and my personal Instagram at Julia.Planford. As always, feel free to reach out to me regarding any questions, comments, or episode requests. And of course, share this podcast with anyone who you feel might be interested in learning a bit more about environmentalism and sustainability as well. Thanks everyone, and I will talk to you guys soon.